Should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. So electrified looks different for everyone. Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. Should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. So electrified looks different for everyone. Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. Hello, this is The Review, a podcast from the Atlantic's culture team about movies, television, and all the things we make to entertain ourselves. I'm Sophie Gilbert. I'm a staff writer at The Atlantic, and I'm joined today by two other staff writers on our culture team, Megan Garber. Hello. And Hannah Georges. Hello, Hannah. Hello, hello. How are you both doing? What have you been reading, watching, listening to? What's cool? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I started watching Hacks again, which has made me very happy. Oh, Um, so good. And yeah, yeah, uh, and rewatching The Sex Lives of College Girls because I'm making friends watch it with me (laughs) now. (laughs) So I've been thoroughly enjoying both of those things. Wait, I want to watch it with you. I've never seen that. I do. Oh my God, you have to. It's so sweet and earnest and funny and it really surprised me. (laughs) And I feel bad for how much it surprised me. (laughs) I had kind of low expectations, I have to say, coming into it. Me too. Yeah, at every corner, it was just better than I anticipated and so sweet and good. Just utterly delightful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's nice to know. Um, I don't know how to segue to our subject today, except to say that we're going to be doing a rewind this week. We are going back to 2007 to talk about the Judd Apatow comedy, Knocked Up. The film turns 15 on June 1st, which I don't really want to acknowledge. It makes me feel (laughs) older than I should (laughs) be. Um, This uh, anniversary, we have to say, also arrives at a unique moment for the movie subject. The recent leak of a draft decision revealed that a five-vote conservative majority on the U.S. Supreme Court is willing to overturn Roe v. Wade. The final decision won't arrive till June, but as it stands right now, it's fair to expect that abortion rights around the country will be severely curtailed. So we wanted to use this episode to explore how Hollywood shapes our conversations about pregnancy, abortion, um, and we thought Knocked Up in particular is an interesting way to look at the subject. It's a massively successful movie about an unwanted pregnancy in which the word abortion never actually appears. Tell me you don't want him to get an A word. Yes, I do, and I won't say it for a little baby years over there, but it rhymes with shmushmortion. Megan wrote an amazing piece about Knocked Up last week um, and about the the many flaws that we will be moving on to discuss now. <laughs> but to get, back, to get back to my question, Megan, like, how have your thoughts on it changed, if at all? I actually don't remember seeing Knocked Up at all, whether it was in a theater in sort of the Netflix, you know, magic DVDs that would appear at your house. But I, <laughs> what I can definitely say is that I was very much struck in this viewing perniciousness in the guise of comedy. And, you know, I think a lot of things that we will probably be talking about in this episode. But yeah, it, it's it sort of has that kind of haze of like omnipresence in my mind where it mm. just sort of, you know, in some ways, has existed forever and in some ways, you know, never started and never ended. It's just kind of there. What about you, Hannah? 
Yeah, very much the same. I have no distinct concrete memories of going to watch it, no memories of like talking about it with people. And yet I know that I I did definitely watch it because when we went, um, when I rewatched it recently, like there were moments that I was having like deja vu or just remembering like, mm. oh yeah, how did I feel about this in real time? And I couldn't quite conjure it, but I know I had experienced any number of things that happened in the movie before. So it wasn't like my first time seeing the weird exchanges between Paul Rudd's character and Leslie Mann's, like it just all of that. <laughs> It's so true. It's one of those movies, rewatching it, I was struck by the fact that I didn't remember the beginning. It's one of the films that so often you like yes. the browsing yeah. and you put on and it's like showing on, I don't know, whatever terrible network. And uh, so I was like, oh, <laughs> this movie has a start. <laughs> um, but yeah, I remember at the time, I think I watched it with a really terrible boyfriend at the time or a guy I was seeing who thought this Miss Motion line was really funny. Mm. <laughs> and I was like, what? Oh. Um, so... We can, we'll do a brief rundown of the movie. Catherine Heigl plays Alison Scott, a producer on e-television, who gets promoted to on-air talent in a kind of hilarious scene with Kristen Wiig, which is actually one of the highlights <laughs> of the movie for me. The best if we're going to uh, be ruthless about it, we should, I should say I really love that scene. And while celebrating out in a club one night with her sister, uh, played by Leslie Mann, the director Judd Apatow's real-life wife, she meets Ben, played by Seth Rogen. It makes no sense that they talk to each other, let alone have sex, but they do. And eight weeks later, Alison finds out that she is pregnant. So Megan, what I took away from your piece is just kind of the weird absence of Alison as a character with any desires, motivations, dreams, goals. Mm -hmm. She's very passive. She lives in her sister's pool house she gets promoted by no apparent effort of her own and then she gets pregnant and then there's no real discussion of her thoughts about what to do so like tell me both of you what what do you make of Alison like what how do we think of her what is she just a foil for the men in this movie to have a cool fun time around I think that's a pretty good um (laughs) pretty good summary of things actually I mean I think that you know this movie is in so many ways it's a rom-com for sure it's a buddy comedy it's a raunch comedy it's a lot of things at once but I think you can also look at it as kind of a modern fairy tale in a lot of ways you know and and in the movie's defense a little bit these aren't just characters they are tropes you know there's a lot of sort of like you know turning these people into ideas and all that kind of stuff and I wouldn't mind that so much if the terms were so sort of unevenly (laughs) split so you know Sophie to your point like I think you know you might think in a movie about pregnancy the character who is sort of centered and elevated and celebrated and all of that would be Allison. And I think, in fact, it is Ben. And I think again and again, sort of the movies like Empathies and Gravities and everything are aimed at Ben and this question of this sort of man-child slacker guy who's very charming, but, you know, kind of stuck in arrested development. And, you know, the question in this movie, as in so many of Judd Apatow's films, is, you know, about growing up. And the question is not, will Allison grow up? The question is, will Ben grow up? And I think one of the things that I found pretty pernicious really in 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 my viewing of the movie this time around is that Allison like serves as kind of a vessel and a means to help Ben grow up and to help Ben become an adult and a father and she really is yeah written out of so much because her role is fundamentally just to be kind of an instrument for someone else's development it's strange the extent to which the movie equates Ben growing up Ben stepping up Ben mm-hmm. becoming 
a man because he is going to become a father with Allison's need to like loosen up. <laughs> right. Like these are they, they're charted as these sort of like two equally urgent <laughs> needs, two equally urgent paths of growth. And, you know, you step back for a second. And it's like, OK, wait, hold on. Hold on. Something here is not quite right. There's a scene, you know, um, toward like as the as the birth scene is um imminent <laughs> when when it becomes clear you know he sort of recites a fact that makes it become clear that he's read you know a single thing about <laughs> pregnancy and what's what's happening to Allison's body that Allison and that the film sort of by by proxy really like celebrates in this way that um, I remember feeling like okay well that seems a little bare minimum to me <laughs> and and watching it again it, it is really striking the extent to which his growth arc is like learning some stuff about pregnancy mm. and about adulthood mm. and hers is like learning to congratulate him for learning yeah. <laughs> some stuff about pregnancy and adulthood, right? Yeah. I, I went back and I was reading a profile of Judd Apatow that came out in 2007. And it was, a, it was a very thoughtful profile. He seemed like a kind of strikingly troubled man at the time for someone who was 39, mm. the toast of Hollywood, happily married, had two gorgeous kids, like, um, which is, you know, yeah. not to say that those things don't allow you to sort of have anxiety and to suffer with, you know, self-image or whatever. But the things I really took away from the profile is... The way he was talking about like the nerds fantasy involved in in these in the kinds of films that he made, the kinds of films that knocked up exemplified at the time, like and I think his quote was, as a nerd representing nerds, uh, we all wish that somebody would take the time to get to know us and love us, warts and all, which I thought was really telling because basically in the movie, like the message in the movie is it's not that he needs even to change necessarily. Like he does grow up and in the end embrace fatherhood and get an apartment and get a job and, you know, have the capacity to pay for things with money. And I think probably get a cell phone, <laughs> you know, he is, he is, shall we say, fairly, fairly bad at life in the beginning of the film. I'm Canadian. I live here illegally, actually. It works out in my advantage, I think, ultimately, because I don't have to pay any taxes. So financially, that's helpful. I mean, I'm not poor or anything, but. I eat a lot of spaghetti. And the message of the movie is not that men like this need to change. It's that women need to take the time to sort of excavate the mm. diamonds that they can be from underneath the mess of marijuana haze and <laughs> arrested development. <laughs> and and that the other thing that struck me when I was watching the movie again is like there's no single woman in this film that you would want to hang out with. Like this really, really not. Like mm. Alison... She's fine. You know, she's not super chill or funny. She's not really given anything entertaining or charming to do in the movie. Her sister is incredibly uptight. The contrast in the scenes between when Allison is having lunch with her mother to discuss the pregnancy and her mother's like, honey, just get rid of it. You know, it happened to your stepsister and then she had a real baby and you're like, oh my God. <laughs> and then the contrast with Seth Rogan's uh, with Ben telling his dad, who's played by beloved Harold Ramis from Ghostbusters, and he's like, I'm going to be a grandfather. <laughs> it just kind of exemplifies the contrast between like the men in this movie, adorable, the women, pretty bad all around. Think about your stepsister. Now, you remember what happened with her? She had the same situation as you, and she had it taken care of. And you know what? Now she has a real baby. Well, one of the things, too, about that sort of contrasting pair of scenes is that Ben, in the conversation with his father, um, has the line, I had a vision for how my life would go, and this definitely is not it. Um, mm -hmm. You know, in talking about this impending pregnancy, which, I mean, that's a very powerful line, in a, you know, particularly in a movie about an unattended pregnancy. And it's very striking that the line was given to Ben and not to Allison. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and, you know, yes. back to your point, Sophie, too, I mean, the film like 
as it is presenting those conversations between, you know, the children and their parents, essentially, you know, it, it that is part of a scene that just kind of tumbles over, you know, the aftermath of Allison's realization that she's pregnant. And we never get the scene where Allison actually decides, you know, that she is going mm-hmm. to keep the baby. That is just completely edited out. And it really is striking, just like you both have been saying, just kind of the absence and, you know, everything that has been edited out of this film, you know, to just maybe make it move along more quickly. But then again, we have at the very beginning this lengthy, you know, very um, casual scene of of men being men and all this stuff. So you don't get the impression that the film is really interested in time saving and all that stuff. <laughs> so yeah. And I one other thing too, just related to that, that I found so fascinating is, so in the scene with Allison and her mom, that scene also starts one of the things that this movie does, which is to sort of metabolize Allison's anxieties about the pregnancy, like through discussions of weight. Um, like oh again God. and again in the movie, yes. when Allison, she doesn't say, I'm fearful about this process. I'm nervous about what this is going to mean for my life. You know, anything that she might be thinking or feeling about becoming a parent is processed as, oh no, I'm going to get fat. <laughs> Fat in the face, jowls, fat ass. Debbie didn't get fat. Debbie is a freak of nature. And it could have worked and been saying something insightful about the nature of her work as on-air talent now, right? Like there's a world in which like it could have ended and been serving something and yet it just it extends so far like into even, you know, her big apology to Ben toward the end. I'm so sorry I broke up with you. I was just in such a panic from all of this. Watching Debbie and Pete together, and my ass got so fat, it did. And the very end of her apology is, and my ass got so fat. And it's like, okay, so that made her behave in this way that we're supposed to believe is irrational because she was so distraught and angry about, of all things, her ass getting fat. (laughs) And and it's just, it just feels, you know, that moment just felt one in looking back at this after 15 years, after the way that the body trends, et cetera, have shifted, it feels particularly ridiculous to hear. But it does feel really outrageous, right? That like of all the things that she's listing as reasons that she might have been under duress in this incredibly complicated, difficult time in her life, the number one thing or the, the sort of thing she lands on is this change to her body, to her weight. Um, and it's not about her child, uh, but that is about, again, sort of desirability in the way that she's supposed to look as a woman and particularly as a white woman, right? Yeah. That's such a good point. She's not worried about money. She's not like, how am I going to pay for this? Who's going to be the nanny? Where am I going to live? Like, right. where will the baby sleep? Like all the all the practical things that you completely lose your mind over. You're right. It's it's purely through the lens of weight. Yeah, uh, that's depressing. The other thing that that really struck me rewatching too was um, that when she finds out she's pregnant, the first thing she does is go to the doctor, and the doctor immediately does a sonogram, which is a very emotional thing. It's something that lots of states compel women mm-hmm. who are seeking abortions to do, precisely because it's so emotional. It is, it's different to consider a pregnancy once you have seen and heard a heartbeat. Like it, it's just so immediately again. Like the film is shifting into this very like uh, I want to say culturally conservative <laughs> gear, where it's like, but look, there's a baby, there's a heartbeat, there's a tiny thing right there, um, you know, and and. The fact that that precedes any discussion from Allison about what she's going to do and then even really overrides it. I I did want to just briefly address the ludicrousness of this setup. Hmm. Like, 
There's no world in which these two people would meet at a club, I think. I mean, maybe maybe there's a world in which they would go home together, but there is no world in which every step of this movie plays out exactly the way it does. Like it is, like you said, Megan, it's, it's an inverted fairy tale. It's like fantasy from a male point of view. Like, does that bother you guys? Oh, right. <laughs> yes. Well, and I think too, I, I was just remembering back to what is now my, I think, officially least favorite scene in this movie of scenes that I, um, many of them I don't like, um, you know, because the movie doesn't just sort of present Ben as, you know, a slacker and everything you said, Sophie, but it also presents him as just a thoroughly, almost aggressively good guy. And I think goes out of its way almost acrobatically <laughs> to, you know, <laughs> to justify and rationalize everything he does. So, you know, the scene I'm thinking of is the scene where the pregnancy actually happens, where they are um, together at Allison's pool house. Ben is fumbling with the condom. And Allison, who has one of her first moments of just utter kind of illogical shrewishness that just kind of flips all of a sudden into her character. But she says, uh, my God, just do it already, um, very impatiently. And he says, okay, and throws the condom away. She had clearly meant, please just hurry up with the condom. Um, and this is the right. sort of, you know, elemental misunderstanding that informs the rest of the plot. The fact that the movie sort of puts all of the consequences and sort of sort of moral weight of that scene on Allison, just being impatient and being a little bit of a shrew, I think is very sort of revealing about what it's up to, about, you know, just sort of its general plot line, but particularly when it comes to Ben. Because what did ensue, she clearly did not mean, uh, please, you know, throw away the condom, you know, and, and that is a massive violation. And yet the film presents it as just another joke, you know, and obviously things ha have right. to happen in this way for the plot to play out as it does. But they also have to happen in this way for the film to preserve the idea that Ben is fundamentally a good guy, that Ben has no fault in this, that Ben is just doing what she asked and being accommodating like he will be throughout the rest of the movie. And I just, it's interesting to me how much it had to contort to sort of rationalize Ben and sort of keep him in the sort of good guy frame of things. Yeah. It's really interesting too, because when Alison learns that, when Ben tells Alison what had happened. Like his reaction is very angry. It's very hostile. Yeah. He's like, "What did you think I was doing? Of course, like blah 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 blah. What did you like? Could you not tell that we went, <laughs> there was no condom? Why the oh, fuck didn't God. you stop me once we started? I don't know. I couldn't tell that you didn't have one on. You, Obviously, oh, I was drunk. Was your vagina drunk? Do you think it's the thinnest condom on earth I have on? I'm a fucking inventor. I mean, a dick skin condom. It's really hostile, and you're like, oh yeah. my god. Yeah. I'm still expected to root for this guy who essentially just stealthed a woman and is now angry at her for having become pregnant. Yeah, and just calling her essentially stupid, right? Like, there's a whole thing yeah. where he's like weirdly graphic and hostile, as you're saying, Sophie, and just like felt gross to watch. And I was thinking about that in contrast with um, Catastrophe. Oh, <laughs> the, um, oh, yeah. <laughs> the British series that starts off also with an unintended uh, pregnancy that brings two very different people together. And I, I thought in watching Catastrophe, and I thought again, especially watching Knocked Up, that like Catastrophe would not work as a show, would not work as a premise if Rob were even like 10% less good. Mm. Um, and yeah. the show, I don't think the show paints him as being good uh, in a way that's unfair, good in a way that's like overly virtuous as compared to like how the character actually plays out. But it's really, it's really remarkable to think about how differently he behaves as opposed to, to Ben mm. in this. And granted, they're at very different positions in life. And also like, that should factor into the plot, into <laughs> how the women in these, in these works are responding to them, and yet it doesn't entirely. 
I did want to talk about about the movie's treatment of abortion as a kind of non-option and about the film industry's treatment of pregnancy and abortion from around that time because uh, later in 2007, obviously, came Juno, Diablo Cody's movie about a pregnant teenager played by Elliot Page, who ultimately decides to go through with her pregnancy and give the baby up for adoption to uh, a very nice lady played by Jennifer Garner. But I think it was debated at the moment that that both these movies made specific choices. And it, it really wasn't until seven years later that Jenny Slate made the movie Obvious Child, which presented, shall we say, a different choice. <laughs> Hannah, I know you rewatched that movie recently. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah. In Obvious Child, Jenny Slate plays a kind of very aspiring stand-up <laughs> comedian uh, <laughs> who is recently dumped by uh, you know her long-term boyfriend and in the uh, fallout of that meets a stranger, has a similar setup, right? What what appears to be either a one-night stand or sort of a short-term uh, encounter, and then later finds out that she is pregnant and spends, you know, a decent amount of the movie at least thinking through or talking through or sort of feeling her way through what is a potential way forward, um, and then navigating the logistics of it. Um, and ultimately, the, the film de- ends with her having the abortion. It's not a big dramatic thing. And afterward, I think they, like, watch she uh, and, and the man um, who got her pregnant, um, end up like watching a movie or something, you know, it just sort of ends with like a, Hey, here's these people at home as she's recovering from a medical procedure that she'd had earlier in the day. You know, like I said, there's not a big to do about it all. Um, and you know, she has a conversation, um, about what, what this would have looked like if this had happened to her, you know, 40, 50 years ago. Um, but even that isn't super heavy handed. It's just like, here's, a woman who obviously is not prepared in any number of ways to be a mother in this exact moment. And so she makes a decision that that uh, makes sense for her in that time. <laughs> I remember that movie feeling pretty revolutionary at the time, which yeah. is funny because it's so not. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> One of the things I really did love about it, though, I just recently rewatched it in the context of, you know, capital A, capital T, all this. Um, and, um, you know, I thought it was so beautiful and subtle the way it presented her character as, I mean, she's the obvious child in so many ways. You know, she is just, she's immature in so many ways, but she is also so just charming and singular. And there is something just so like lovely and compelling about that character. And I think the movie just in this very, yeah, just very soft, tender way conveys the idea of how just full of potential she is. You want to see what happens with her. You want to see what she does with her life. You know that she's in sort of a down period now, but that that period will end and she's going to do amazing things, whatever amazing means to her in particular, you know, and just the idea of her being entitled to discover that for herself, being entitled to sort of have that journey on her own terms to sort of realize her talents and her own, you know, just kind of quirk and singularity. Um, The way that the movie is just sort of infused with that idea, I just found so powerful right now. It's such a quiet, lovely argument, but I think it's an an, an argument that's there throughout the film. And and I found that really remarkable. Yeah. It's really interesting also too, like as a, as a budding comedian with an intense amount of charisma who's extremely endearing like she really runs parallel to characters played by Seth Rogen yeah. shall very we much say so. like, yeah very much so right. they have yeah. much in common <laughs> <laughs> this is exactly what our baby will look like it is it's not bad hello mommy our baby's gonna be French Canadian with a little hint of Spanish exactly I, I'm not good with accents but... <laughs>
want to talk about the smush-motion scene. I don't really know how to bring it up. Um, it's, so, oh. it's so telling, shall we say, that this is a movie in which abortion is like Voldemort. People can't even <laughs> say it out loud. Like, it's the, the medical procedure, a very common medical procedure that shall not be named. Like, um, like why is it such a taboo in, in this movie? I mean, it very much might be just sort of, you know, marketing and sort of generally capitalistic concerns. But I just, you know, to sort of just take the movie on its own terms, I would say that, you know, this is a film that it is really conservative. The upshot is family is wonderful. Anything that gets you to family is good. Um, I think it's really telling that, you know, you could say, for example, well, you know, this is just a comedy. Why are you paying so much attention to just a comedy? Like, it doesn't matter. But I think it's really revealing that in this comedy that is so self-consciously a comedy too, you know, everything about it sort of makes a joke about literally everything. Um, but also mm-hmm. Judd Apatow's daughters, you know, are actors in this movie. His wife is an actor in the movie. Um, you know, okay. the end of the film, the closing credits show family photos of cast and crew, either as children or with their own children. Um, the final scene of sort of the movie proper shows Allison and Ben with their daughter as Treakley music plays and it's family photos. And, you know, the notion is everything worked out because there is now a new baby in the world. And that is the fundamental, I think, message of of this film. And so I think if your assumption is baby equals good, and that is the beginning and the end of the discussion, you can't really allow or entertain anything that would come between that message. And so I think that that's, you know, that's a big part of it. And then also, of course, you know, just cultural notions of shame and, you know, a lot of these things that are still part of the abortion conversation, despite all the progress that's been made, you know, that in sort of, especially in mass culture, the way abortion is talked about, you know, there's always a little bit of a caveat, always a little bit of a, you know, euphemism invoked and and all that kind of stuff. So I think there's a lot happening with the absence, but I think, yeah, I I don't think that the movie is structured in a way that would allow it to talk about abortion as a a legitimate or simply medical option. Right, because there's that scene of Ben holding the baby toward the end, right? Like after the baby has arrived um, and he's sort of talking to the baby who I think is asleep and, you know, Allison's meant to be asleep or maybe overhearing a little bit of it and it's part of what endears her to him or whatever. They're doing that whole montage Mm -hmm. of her like being in love with him now because he is making gestures toward competent fatherhood. Anyway, in that that context, he's talking to the baby and, and relaying that initial sort of condom uh, confusion as the film paints it. Then your mommy said... Just do it already. Which was very confusing to Daddy. So I listened to the most literal translation of that, and I just did it already. What would you do? It's really, really on the yeah, nose. Yeah. <laughs> and I was almost surprised by it. I don't know why. But um, even in the context of a film that is really, really clear about, like, baby is good. Baby is good even if circumstances are confusing or bad. Don't tell Mommy. But it was the smartest thing I ever did listening to her, because now you're here. Nice. I think it is. The rationalizing away of the, again, like, quote unquote, confusion, as the film explains it, uh, regarding the condom was really jarring, uh, in particular as it's being explained to an infant, a newborn. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's just this, yeah, like, it, it, you can't have a film with that scene or that sort of ends on that note be a film in which abortion is a serious and genuinely reckoned with option. How do you rationalize those two things in the same in the same film, which is wild considering that this is also a film that really discusses women's bodies um 
Mm. as their parts yeah. right like there's i mean the actual birth scene is really mm. where to begin um but this is this is a film in which uh you know ben's work what ben is doing in an attempt to someday have work at first is building a website with his friends in which they you know they mm. identify and then list every moment at which you know a celebrity a, a woman is nude or is in some way revealing some part of her body in film Fleshofthestars.com. <laughs> Thank you. I was like, it's not Mr. Skin. That's the competitor. <laughs> Why did that stick in my brain? <laughs> um, <laughs> this is a film in which, you know, the romantic lead works on that kind of a website. And we get lots of details and lots of like information about the inner workings of the men who are sort of like goofy, like stoners, whatever, putting together this website and talking about women's bodies again in this like really like sort of piecemeal, reducing them to their parts type way. And yet there is an inability to reckon with what women um, have to deal with. And so it just that I just found that particularly stark um, and that the the scene of Ben laying that out for the the newborn was pretty, I don't know, it just felt like a very clear thesis from the film. It's interesting because there is such a strain of like angry defensiveness among all the men in this movie. Oh, and yeah. It was mirrored, shall we say, by the star and the filmmaker in the reaction to um, Catherine Heigl's criticism of it oh, in yeah, 2008. Yeah. She was interviewed by Vanity Fair. She said, it was a little sexist. It paints the women as shrews, as humorless and uptight, and it paints the men as lovable, goofy, fun-loving guys. It exaggerated the characters, and I had a hard time with it on some days. I'm playing such a bitch. Why is she being such a killjoy? Why is this how you're portraying women? 98% of the time, it was an amazing experience, but it was hard for me to love the movie. Which is, I think we can say now, all fair and valid critique. But at the time, the response to her saying that was really ferocious mm -hmm. and it was part i think of what led to heigl's downgrading in hollywood she was seen as first of all she was seen as ungrateful mm -hmm. for saying right. these things about a movie that was her biggest career hit to date and then after that shortly she was seen as difficult to work with and that was a theme that sort of <laughs> came <laughs> led to her larger characterization in hollywood what do you guys think of the response to this it's interesting to me that i think even a few years later, maybe I'm maybe I'm misremembering the exact amount of time, but that Judd Apatow said that he had been expecting yeah. an apology. Yeah, <laughs> like, and it's always it's always interesting. Yeah, of course, to he me. had been. right, of course. Um, but the idea of saying publicly that you were expecting an apology from somebody is just like an interesting thing to me to begin with. Um, yeah. But you know, what would that apology have been for exactly? Mm, and I'm, I right. I would have loved like some some further articulation of that. Right? Was it for calling the movie sexist at all? Was it for doing that in public? Was it for not being sufficiently happy with this role that she had been given? Was it for saying, you know, that 2% of the time it was not an amazing experience, right? That like 98% of the time it was an amazing experience is like quite the qualifier to have in a quote about, you know, feeling some level of difficulty with how women are portrayed in this film, right? And yet, again, still something that he not just expected an apology about, but it told people as much. And that that was really interesting to yeah. me. Yeah. I, you know, I sort of realized that like we in some ways are casting ourselves as the Debbies and the Allisons by by reading so much into this. And as we should, I think, yeah. but also, you know, you you also would like for your comedies to just be fully funny. And, you know, there are ways that I want this right, movie to right. just be funny and to have, you know, that kind right. of classic Abitovian um combo of like humor and heart and have that be that. You know, so I was 
trying to think through, well, you know, maybe, maybe I'm misreading and maybe, you know, maybe the movie is doing something more interesting than, than would seem. And so I thought, you know, maybe there's a way to read the absence of abortion in particular and, you know, all the stuff that we've been talking about, all the kind of jump cuts and edit outs and all that kind of stuff. Like maybe that is the movie trying to sort of suggest that Allison's decision is so much her own business that it is not the business of the audience, that, you know, the movie is going to sort of honor mm-hmm. her selfhood and personhood and, you know, decision itself by not showing that to us, you know. And I I, I would like to think that, but then per your question, Sophie, about the moments, you know, that, that sort of stick out, I mean, again and again, this movie does not seem to care about her right to privacy. The movie, you know, again and again, you know, violates her privacy when it comes to particularly her body. So, you know, the scene of the labor with, you know, the crowning moment where her body and its maximal moment of pain is, you know, presented full frontal Mm -hmm. to the audience and it is played for laughs. And we know that she has not had an epidural Mm -hmm. and she is just in agony. And again, that's presented as comedy. And I, so, so this is a, just a long winded way of saying, you know, I tried to give this movie the benefit of the doubt in that regard, but, (laughs) but could not in the end because of that sort of accumulation of, of, of scenes and violations. So. That's what makes the angry defensiveness, I think, so hard for me to take because, like, no one wants to be forced into the role right. of Debbie. Like, I, lo- I love Debbie actually <laughs> in lots of ways, but like, you don't want to be forced into the role of the woman who's always complaining about things. Do you know what I mean? But at the same time, like, stuff like this does matter, it does have an impact. I feel like comedy as a genre does what the movie did to Ben, which is rationalize, which is tell you that you shouldn't take it too seriously. Like it insists that his heart is in the right place, that like the movie itself is fundamentally a good guy. You know, like that's sort of what comedy does. It's, you know, like genres do have kind of a moral valence to them and comedy itself in Mm -hmm. emphasizing laughter and low stakes kind of says with every scene, like, don't take this too seriously. You would be wrong and overreading to take it seriously. But I think that's also what gives it its power as a sort of pernicious force because it sort of disarms you as a viewer from taking it too seriously, from treating it certainly as political, which like this movie, my goodness, is very definitely political. And yet it's sort of claims that it isn't, you know, and I think that's what can, I think that's why the three of us are having such strong reactions to it, because it's it's not presented as a drama, it's not presented as anything but an excuse for laughter, and that makes its sort of messaging, I think, all the more powerful, and the word I keep using, pernicious, because because that's what it is, and it is, it is emitting messages to, you know, the millions of people who have seen this movie over the years and will continue to see it, and I think that's why it's worth considering even if it does make us Debbie, literal Debbie Downers. <laughs> <laughs> Debbie Downer, oh my God. Well, maybe we can end. Let's end with the game. <laughs> We're fun with promise. Uh, Yay. <laughs> no, no, no. Yay. Uh, but I did want to ask you guys about films that have done a, a better job portraying um, women's reproductive choice, shall we say, or perhaps just portraying abortion, because there have been several of them, more than several. The one I've been thinking about recently amid the row news is Dirty Dancing Mm. um, and its portrayal of Penny's character and her illegal abortion, which leaves her in agony and almost bleeding to death and terrified that she's going to be sterile. It's like, it's... (laughs) It's a it's a subplot in the movie, we should say, in this like otherwise very like sweet, endearing, coming of age romantic tale. But it it's 
I think for many young women and men, it's one of their first experiences of a, a portrayal of abortion in a in a mainstream movie. And I, I think the way in which it's treated, it's is striking for the era that the movie was made in from the, you know, it's from the 80s. Like Penny is not demonized for her choice. Like it's presented as a choice that she in many ways has to make as a dancer. She has very few options on the table. The man who has gotten her pregnant is callous and awful to say the the least so I don't know I think it's just it's one that's aged surprisingly well for me what, what about you too yeah I agree with all of that I, I think dirty dancing is such a good portrayal of so many things um the, the one that occurred to me <laughs> that's my that's my take on things um but the, <laughs> including <laughs> dance and the time of your life in general so the one that occurred to me is one that I, I it came out in 2015 and um in my mind anyway did not get a lot of attention and I think is is definitely you know relevant again um it's a movie called grandma and it is this very small, I think in the best of ways, film about um, an 18-year-old who finds herself in need of an abortion and she goes to her grandmother um, to take her to the appointment. Um, So it's effectively a road trip type of film in the manner of Thelma and Louise, except with a grandmother and granddaughter. And I should say that very crucially, um, the grandmother is played by Lily Tomlin. The granddaughter is played by Julia Garner. The acting in this movie, as you might suspect, is just phenomenal, but also the writing is phenomenal. Um, And I think particularly because even though in a very literal sense, the plot leads up to and revolves around this medical procedure. What it really is, is this very nuanced and very lovely character study of, of, of these two people together. And, you know, there's something so intimate about two people in a car together just talking and, you know, the way that all the good things about that sort of trope in theater is realized in this movie. And I just, I think it's, um, for all the things it says and all the things it doesn't, I think this movie is is really lovely and beautiful. So so Grandma from 2015 would be my, my thought. Hannah, what yeah. about you? Well, as ever, I'm thinking about Portrait of a Lady on Fire. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, which, you know, Portrait of a Lady on Fire is, of course, a romance, but I think in a lot of ways it's also just a movie about how women help each other survive. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there's really just like a subplot, like a small a small part of the movie um, about the, the sort of the young housemaid, Sophie, um, who learns that she's pregnant. And she sort of describes it really like matter-of-factly. Like she just says, you know, like I haven't had my period. And Marianne just asks like if she wants to have a baby. Um, And when Sophie says no, you know, there's no big dwelling. There's no long exchange. There's no sort of real to-do about it. They just kind of set out to help her figure this out. And of course, the movie's set in the late 18th century. Um, So the actual abortion scene happens in like an herbalist home and there's like a baby present and there, you know, there's just this really sort of like beautiful ethereal quality about it. And then it's, you know, rendered in a painting. Um, But the, the movie just plays it out as this really difficult yes but not not just difficult moment right like mm. it's this it's this way um it's something that happens that brings the three of them together that brings um you know marion and eloise together in a way also because they're helping sophie and that's almost like the logical conclusion to what this young woman without much at her disposal would want in a moment like that and i just thought it was really beautiful and and poetic uh, and just appreciated the extent to which again like this is set obviously Long, 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 long time ago, and yet there's a matter of factness that seems to uh, evade a lot of modern, <laughs> a lot of films set in modern times. Yeah, perfect picks, both of you. I'm excited for our upcoming abortion movie club, which I will now suggest. <laughs> <I'm just kidding. laughs> 
It's just really, it's really striking that the, both of your answers to those questions. I was like, yes, I need to watch those this weekend. <laughs> Well, that does it for the show. The review is produced by Kevin Townsend with help from AC Valdez. The executive producer of Atlantic Podcasts is Claudine Bade, and our art is by Charlie Lemignon. I'm Sophie Gilbert. Thank you, Megan. Thank you, Sophie. Thank you, Hannah. Thank you. We will be back next week. <laughs>